Welcome back to Shadows in the Limelight. It's hard to believe that 2022 is already half over. It doesn't seem like that long ago we were just ringing in the new year. But the lineup of guests that we've had this year has been just incredible, and it just keeps on coming with the gentleman we have on today's show. Dominic Musio is the guest on today's show. Dominic and I have a mutual connection with Jason from Tone House Records, who's partnered with Jeff Duncan from Armand Saint, and is just putting together a sweet lineup of rock artists that are releasing new music. Dominic is here to promote a solo record that is set to release next month called Candy at a Funeral with a new single, Special Thing, out now. Dominic has a band, Wicked Garden, that has released great work as well. Links for everything he's done with Wicked Garden and their latest release, Bipolar Coaster, as well as the latest single from his solo work is in our show notes. Let's get right to it with Dominic Musio. Dominic, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, David. Appreciate you. Hey, you bet. And pleasure's all mine. Uh, we're, we're recording this on a uh, on a Sunday morning, and I believe you find yourself in Vegas. I don't think very many people do early mornings in Vegas, but yeah, I'm, I'm an anomaly. I'm like one of those people that sleeps like three hours a night, so I'm up at like five or six every day because I don't know what else to do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I guess I'm, I want to start there. Um, you know, we we've been talking with a lot of people and, and Vegas seems to be like the new, I'm going to say rock hub. Like there's, we know there's guys from kiss that live there. Sebastian Bach, I believe lives out there. Eddie trunk just bought a house. The the metal scenes in Vegas. Why, why is that? I, I think it's just a natural progression. I think, you know, uh, contrary to popular belief, a lot of musicians, whether they were successful, you know, years ago or, broke um so uh cost of living although it is going up ridiculously is still pretty affordable here compared to like la and new york austin so and then you know a lot of those guys myself included are um you know for lack of a better word action junkies they need something to do 24 hours a day and this is one of the only places where you can do that like you know i said i don't sleep so if at two o'clock in the morning i want to go bowling i can you know <laughs> so i think it's just you know it just makes it for an easier way to uh to live that you know lifestyle and then also you've got uh it's a place where you can reach many different people from many different backgrounds without having to leave your house. You know, if you get uh, a casino gig or really any local gig, the odds are the people in the crowd are not locals. They're from all over the world. So you can kind of like tour without leaving your house. Right. What I think they're doing with a lot of these residency shows is definitely, it's definitely taking a change on the touring industry. I think it's really cool when you see somebody say, Hey, we're going to post up seven to 10 days and do five shows at planet Hollywood, you're essentially just saying, Hey, we're not going to have any touring costs, uh, but we're, we're going to have you come to us. And it's a, if you book them, they will come and people are coming. So yeah, uh, people want to see shows. And from a cost factor too, a touring is expensive, you know, and oh, yeah. you know, it's, it's, you know, just to hold up in one place where you can control all those costs and not have to travel and not have to, you know, uh, it's not that you don't have to hire a crew, but most of the crews work in house here. So, you know, if you need stage hands and, you know, monitor guy and lighting guys and all that, they're, they're already there at the venue. So it, it brings that cost down as well. 
Well, what uh, really works out well for you is that uh, Jason at Tone House uh, calls yeah. his home Vegas. And you guys are working on a new mini album, Candy at a Funeral, set out to release next month, August 2022. Mm-hmm. How'd you get linked up with, with Jason? Jason actually produced, first of all, I've known the guy for about 10 years, but um, he produced the last EP that my band Wiki Garden did. Um, so, you know, we work together really well. He's an amazing producer, amazing musician, and a good friend. And what happened with this one was um, I had called him up and I said, look, I got a bunch of like these acoustic songs that don't really fit Wicked Garden. And I got to get them out of my head. I need to, you know, just put them down. Can I come over one afternoon, just lay down like four or five songs just to have them and then I'll decide what to do with them. So he's like, yeah. So he came over and I just played four or five songs. And then he called me to come back the next day and he was like, why do you want these to be acoustic? You know, and I was like, because that's how I wrote them. Like, it's I've never really fleshed them out to do anything else. You know, it's just like wrote them on acoustic guitar. And he's like, no, these are really good. You need a whole band for this. It's, you know, Wicked Garden doesn't want to do it. I said, well, it's not that they don't want to. I said, but these songs have been presented to Wicked Garden and they just didn't make the cut. So he was like, well, I, I think we should do it as a full band type thing. And then me and Jeff just started this label, Tone House, and we'd like to sign you to, to put it out. And I was like, Okay. But yeah, like I love Jeff too. Jeff's a great guy. I've known him for years and, uh, you know, it wasn't something I was expecting to do, but I figured, you know what, I might as well, you know, put it out, see what happens. Right. And, and for those that don't know, that's Jeff Duncan, our mm. armored saint. If you, if you don't know who Jeff Duncan is and, and Jason, obviously a friend of this show, um, it, it, with just starting tone house, getting some great acts on, on his label. Yeah. Um, and just, it's fun to see rock music, but and one of these songs, I mean, the, the new single that's out, you wrote when you were 18 years old. Now, I'm not going to let anyone else do the math because we don't <laughs> want to incriminate you, but you've sat on this for a while. And yeah. if this didn't make the cut for Wicked Garden, new single's great. Like when, when you look at that now, you're 18 years old writing this. Mm-hmm. People always say you have a, a lifetime to write that first record. And then that sophomore album, you know, you could have that sophomore slump because you got to write it all in a year. But right. you've been sitting on this. What's it like to, to put that material and, and see it now? Does it put you back in the mind when you were 18 or does it feel fresh and new? Yeah. Now, like, new sound you're putting on it. Well, I mean, when I was 18, I had, uh, I, I put a record out or two records out before I was 21 on some small indie labels up in New York city. Um, special thing was written when I was 18. It's the first song I ever wrote literally without any instruments. Like I was, I, uh, I was on the, the uh, Staten Island ferry coming back from Manhattan. I had ran into a girl that I had this major crush on in high school. And I went to the Manhattan to, I think I was going to like the, the, like one of the music stores up there, like Sam Ash or something like that. And um, I just, I was literally walking around fifth Avenue. She was walking the other way. And we almost like smashed into each other. It was like that, like, you know, bad, you know, Hallmark romance, meet cute thing. And we caught up for about a half hour and I, I'd always had a crush on her and I'd never said anything about it. And then we said our goodbyes. And as I was on the ferry going home, like the entire song came to me that I, I grabbed this, bag that I had bought something on and started writing the lyrics and the chord changes on it. And I went home and I picked up my acoustic and wrote it. And then it just never did anything. I, I think at one point I thought it was too personal. Um, but then also it was a very short song. It was only like a minute and a half. I had three verses, two choruses, and it was done. So I sat on that for years. I tried to bring it back with Wicked Garden, but we couldn't do anything with it. Cause again, it was mostly acoustic. Jason, when he heard it, 
was like, no, we're going to do this electric. And then he came up with that ascending guitar line that Dan and Dan, Dan, Dan. And it's like, I was like, that's fucking sounds like the cure. And I love the cure. <laughs> so we just kind of went nuts with that one. Like, well, what if we layer this guitar? And what if we put this? In? And we just started adding, adding more stuff. And then he's like, yeah, you need to write like two more verses because the song's way too short. <laughs> so I went home, scribbled up a couple more verses and then came out. And it sounds fantastic. It sounds like nothing I've ever done before. And the funny thing is, is that it sounds so unlike the original version, which if the original version is actually on YouTube, I did like 10 years ago, just kind of, you know, uploading the first thing I ever did. And I'm like, wow, you can't even tell it's the same song. So it's good to kind of like excise that demon and get it out there, you know? Right. Well, and one thing that I'm curious on is that you're not the first person we've heard of this. You know, I wrote this 10 years ago and kept it on the shelf. And now it becomes, you know, something on the B side of an album that becomes a big hit or whatever. We hear that story a lot where where do you keep the lyrics like where is this vault like how does that actually happen I, how do you go oh here i dust it up now granted you said it was on youtube you can go look it up hear it but well i i i have kind of like a uh, a photographic memory for lyrics i never forget lyrics i you know i also been playing cover bands for 20 years too so i have to memorize hundreds of songs and it's i'm one of those people that if i hear it or read it i'll never forget it it's almost like having an idiotic memory, but just for lyrics. Like, I can't remember where I put my car keys half the time. But if you tell me, you know, sing every lyric from the first Aerosmith album released in 1973, yeah, I can nail it. Yeah, so it's funny because even with lyrics, like the, the first time I actually put them on paper is right before they record them. So I'll be singing them for months just out of memory. And then when I go to actually do vocal lines, I'll write them down just so I can separate you know, where the breath is going to go, where the tonality has to change. So I can make little notes. But other than that, like they never really hit paper until I'm ready to record them. And, and that's an unbelievable skill. I mean, we hear that from a, a lot of, I mean, it's funny that I was talking with uh, on this show, uh, Bruce Bowden, who worked with Garth Brooks, obviously not, not, not heavy rock, but he said Garth is the same way, but even with faces, he's that way that he oh, can really? just pull a name out and do it. And true artists. I mean, it's, it's not as if you need something with chords to tell you what to play. If you can play in a cover band, you can do all your own material, mm-hmm. but getting back to what you do with wicked garden, mm-hmm. you guys, it's not as if you've sat on stuff for a long time. You guys released a record. I think it was just last year. Mm-hmm. It, 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 is your new solo stuff? I mean, we're going to see both Wicked Garden and your solo stuff going forward. Wicked Garden is not going away, right? Right. Correct. Yeah. Wicked Garden is still, is still there. We, we took a little bit of a hiatus this year just because I think everyone was burnt out for, you know, we, the band's been around 10 years. Well, I've been in it 10 years. The band's been around 12. And, you know, we did two records and hundreds of cover shows. And, and our cover shows are not like, the typical 45 minutes now we play for four hours. We don't take breaks, you know? So doing that, I think everybody just needed to step back for a little while and just go, Hey, let's just take a break, you know, for a few months, not do any shows. Let's just, you know, we all love each other. We're all best of friends, but it's like, we just need to, you know, step back. So that's where I had that opportunity to do this. And the only reason why I did it is because I had the opportunity because I knew that we weren't doing anything. If, if we could go and was still going full frontal, I would have put this to the side. You know, but being a type A personality, if you give me a stretch of time where there's nothing to do, I'm going to throw a chair through a window. <laughs> How many nights a week were you guys playing shows? I mean, it really varied. We went through this phase probably about six years ago, right before or five years ago, right before we decided to start doing the original stuff. Well, we played about three nights a week, two to three nights a week. Um, and then, you know, we had a couple of residency things happen and then we would play maybe two or three times a month. You know, it just, it ebbs and flows out here. 
Um, people get burnt out of you. So we always were very mindful of that we never wanted to book a million shows, but if somebody offered us, you know, a residency at a casino, you know, or at a, a club, you know, Hey, we want you to play every weekend for the next six weeks. Well, we're going to do it. You know, the money's there, you know? So if it was up to me, I play seven nights a week. The issue is that I can't find an opportunity like that where I don't have to play Jesse's girl. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing against Rick Springfield, but no, uh, no, it's just one of those songs I'm never playing again if I have anything to say about it. <laughs> but if the money's there, you'll do it. Uh, Not exactly, because I've been offered gigs like that, and I turned oh. them down. Um, I mean, you know, look, I'm a, I'm an adult. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not a kid. I'm well into my 40s. You know, I own a house. I have kids, and uh, you know, money's not a factor for me. Luckily, I have a good job, and and my wife has a good job, so. I don't do anything just for money, but I was offered a gig where we would play five to six nights a week in the casinos, but it's the same 20 songs every night in the same order. Don't deviate from the set. Don't improvise. And it's just like, I, I couldn't do it. I just, you know, I'd be phoning it in. And see that that's rough too. I was talking with some folks that are in country music and they're mm -hmm. talking about Nashville, that the thought of somebody who knows nothing about the music industry is, Oh, if you're, if you want to be a country music star, you go to Nashville, you're going to go play your own songs in some dive bar, some record exec's going to see you and you're going to be in the Capitol record office and you're going to get your single. And they said that they won't even hardly let you play your own material oh, yeah. on Broadway yeah. anymore. And Vegas is kind of the same way. I mean, mm -hmm. if you think about it, you go down on Fremont street. It's not that you don't want to go hear new material. I don't want to hear Jesse's girl, but if I heard a nice rendition of, you know, wild side by Motley Crue, I'd be like, yeah, those guys are great. Mm -hmm. But it's like, at the end of the day, I, I, and that, that does, I, I'm just gonna say it sucks. I can say that. But one of your blog posts that I was reading about said that you feel as if you've been largely ignored in your home city, state and country. And what you did with wicked garden is actually blowing up overseas. Mm -hmm. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah, we sell more records and get more streams overseas than anything in America. I think at this point, it's safe to say 60 to 70% of all our uh, streams are overseas, uh, a lot in South America, a lot in Europe, uh, Scandinavian countries, you do really well, Denmark, Finland, stuff like that. We sold more records in Japan and Australia than we'll ever sell in America. Um, and it's just, you know, America is very pop orientated. Uh, especially if you're, you know, a small indie band, good luck. Like there's nothing for you. You've, if you're a, a rock band and you're not on a major label, nobody's going to sneeze at you. You know, uh, the radio, our own radio stations here in, in Vegas wouldn't play us. And it's like, we're from this area. Like you guys won't play. And they actually, somebody from a local radio station actually told my manager, we're going to wait to see if they blow up someplace else. And then we'll start playing them. And, and my manager's like, they literally live like a mile from the radio station. Why would you not support local guys? And like, well, you know, we have to wait and see how they're doing, you know, everywhere else. And that's that mentality. And uh, yeah, we were, I mean, we got some good press. We got some good plays and, and, you know, we did get some radio play around, but for the most part, yeah. Most of our press comes from the UK and, and, and overseas. Um, and that's fine. The problem is they can't afford to go there to, to tour it. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, and that's, it, it, there's like that fine line because there are some bands now that are making their yearly income by going and touring Europe for 
two months out of the year. And then they can come here and play small gigs when they can almost play a stadium or a large size venue over there. Right. It's just, it's, it's amazing to me that that's even something that we have to, to talk about. And when you say you're selling records overseas, are you selling physical copies over there? Or are you selling um, downloads on iTunes or the equivalent? Like, yeah. So over, uh, the, the CDs themselves mostly sold overseas, especially in Japan and Australia. We, we sold a lot there. Uh, at home, you know, it, it, we, we sell them at shows and, and we, that's where we tend to, uh, tend to sell the most of them is at our live shows. But as far as in the stores and everything, no, nah, not really. Digital is kind of uh, kind of evenly spread. Most of the digital was from, it, you know, was evenly spread between America and overseas. And I'm not, you know, saying we sold thousands and thousands of copies. We did it. We sold a few hundred, which for a, sm- you know, a band on a small indie label, I, that's great. You know, like we're probably one of the few bands. That, like, I think I, I read that less than 1% of bands will ever sell more than 100 CDs. And we definitely blew that away. So it's like, okay, you know, we did that streaming. You know, there's 90% of all the uh, songs up on uh, Spotify never get streamed once. You know, <laughs> so we've done pretty good. There were over a million streams. So I think we did okay. Yeah. And, and what do you think of being able to know all those stats? Is it something that you're constantly going and monitoring to see what you did last week or last month? Or is it is it something you can't put away or is it something you'd rather just not look at and stay focused on what you're doing? I can't put it away. And and a lot of that comes from getting royally screwed when I was younger. You know, um, I put out my first record in 1991. And there was no way of tracking anything. You just had to believe whatever your record company told you. You know, so I remember driving around New York City in 91 or 92, and one of the songs from my band was on the radio. It seemed like every 20 minutes and it never sort of dime. And you would, you know, get your statements from the record company 18 months later. And it'd be like, oh, you got played two times. Like, dude, I heard it two times in one hour. Like, that can't be right. So because of that, you know, after I left the music business, at least left the original side that did covers for a while, where you know, it was just basically bookings. When I got back into it, I said, I'm ne- not going to let that happen again. I want to know where everything's going on, everything that's happening. Um, and I monitor it constantly, twice a day. I go on, okay. And because you also, you're looking for little spurts where you can kind of capitalize. COVID kind of killed the opportunity to do that, to be honest with you. But if you're sitting there and going over sudden, like, hey, we're getting tons of streams in San Diego. We should go book a show in San Diego. You know, that's what I was trying to capitalize on. Now you can't really do that because once COVID hit and shut everything down, everybody's so backlogged. You know, you can't just call up a club and go, hey, you got an opening the next two weeks? They're like, yeah, call me in eight months. You know, so that's why. I do. But now it's just like a habit. I have to check it every single day. And and that's, that's an interesting way to think of it. I didn't put it that way. If you can see where your large streaming are, you can see where you can likely turn out and hopefully invest the money. But even yeah. with your investment, is it, let's just say it's San Diego, you're going to go down to San Diego and, and book the show. There's a lot of people that are going to say, and eh, we're going to book day of and buy our tickets day of, because who knows anymore? There's so many cancellations sure. in the music industry that as a buyer, you know, I, I, I think about the the poison Motley Crue tour, those tickets were not, and, and obviously Def Leppard was not, I mean, that got canceled two years in a row. Yeah. There are people that are held up with thousands of dollars in tickets for years. And I think that even if it's a big nationwide touring act like that, it makes people gun shy for a club show even. Absolutely. Um, but in any event, um, new album, we're calling it, you're calling it a mini album. What's the difference, yeah. between, a mini, what's the difference between a mini album and an EP? 
So there's actually, there's no difference unless you go overseas. So it's all, it's all terminology. Uh, in EP, as it used to be called, it means extended play. In America, that means it's less than 35 minutes or has less than seven songs. If you go to Europe, an extended play means it's one song that's longer than five minutes. So what we call an EP, they call a mini album. Uh, so we just said, just call it a mini album. Just makes it easier when we set up instead of having to do two different press releases, basically, you know, and the reality is, is the business has gotten more towards singles. Like it used to be in the fifties and sixties albums as a formatter, not necessarily dead, but it's kind of like, you know, since nobody really buys physical copies, they're only going to listen to the songs they want to hear. So you don't have to bombard them with 10 songs, 12 songs. You throw out three or four and you could do that twice a year. So you've made the equivalent of an album, but it just hasn't all come out at once. And we just felt, you know, especially with Tone House, so we're only doing it digital as far as, uh, you know, distribution and we're just selling CDs, you know, through this, the label itself. It just made more sense to do it that way instead of putting out all the cost. Well, and, and that makes perfect sense. I, when I read that, I thought, I, and, and again, nobody can say they can't learn something from listening to this show because yeah. I did not know that. Now I do, mm-hmm. um, which is interesting. Uh, I, I didn't know that, that that was a big difference between overseas and here. Um, where'd you come up with the title candy at a funeral? So the actual, the line is from a song that's on the record called mother, my heart. And there's a line that says you're sickly and sweet, like candy at a funeral. Um, it just stuck with me. And, and that line came from, I was actually reading about, uh, in Australia, I think it was, there's actually, if you go to a funerals, there's actually candy. It's called funeral candy and it's black. And it's usually made with some kind of a, like a peppermint or something like that. And it's basically to give children to kind of calm them down if they're in a stressful situation. So the thought to me was both morbid yet beautiful at the same time. It's like, you're kind of, you know, making sure these kids are, you know, trying to be, calmed in a way but it's also like the idea of going to a funeral and passing out snickers bars just seems completely fucking morbid to me so that that line stuck with me for a long time and then when i when i started recording everything i had two ideas for the title one was candy at a funeral and the other one i'll save because i might use it for the next one and everybody has said yeah candy funeral. that's the one don't even bother with the other one that's that's it i'm like okay so that's the one and the imagery that it's and if you if you've seen any of the press releases or, or anything like that you know, I did all the uh, promo shots inside a, there's a great place I know called Cemetery Pulp that's ordered, uh, owned by a friend of mine. It's all occult stuff. And she also does taxidermy. So if you go into her shop, it's all these like, you know, cow fetuses and mason jars and it's really creepy. So I had my wife who's a photographer go in there and, you know, take pictures of me, you know, sucking on the lollipop, walking around all these dead carcasses. And so the imagery just, just, it hit, you know? So I'm like, yeah, that's, that's what we're going with. <laughs> Well, it, it, it's a it's a catching title and uh, links for the new single are going to be in our show notes. Special thing. Um, when you we, what is the actual date in August? Do you have it's like, a- uh, as of now, uh, barring any unforeseen circumstances, August 24th. All right. Well, we don't want to see any unforeseen circumstances with this record. If you, I would encourage everybody to go click on it, listen to it. It's an awesome sound. But who do you credit for for your sound? Like, where? What are your biggest influences as a kid? And what do we hear when we hear this album? Uh, on this, okay. So my influences are, as a personal thing is wide ranged. Everything from Aerosmith to Nirvana to Concrete Blonde to Neil Diamond to Elvis, like it's all over the place. Um, 
the five songs on this record is really almost five different styles. Like I said, special thing is very in the cure mode. Uh, song edge of nowhere is very Foo Fighters. Uh, mother. My heart is very acoustic Alice in Chains. Um, Jason really brought out all those influences in me. He knows, he knows me. He knows what I like to listen to and stuff like that. And I always say like with this record, I said in the, in the uh, press release, I give Jason skeletons and he put flesh and blood on them. You know, because he was like, I hear this. I know you like this. So let's try to go for that sound. And it worked every time. There's not one song in this record where we went, ah, that's not working. Let's do it again. You know, it's just like, yeah, that's what that song should sound like. You know? Well, and, and just uh, anybody that loves new rock music, go check out this new single. It's awesome. Do you plan on doing any shows, solo shows to promote it in, yeah. in, in the Vegas area? Uh, okay. Yeah, I, I put together a group of uh, friends. Uh, they call themselves Chemical Tribe. Um, <laughs> it's got uh, John Mills, who's in Roxy Gun Project. It's got uh, uh, Michael James, who's in Nocturnal Affair. Uh, the drummer who also played on the record, Ron Huddy, uh, he's in the Plasmatics. Uh, it, just great guys, all great musicians. Uh, we've already got a couple of shows booked that I not, I'm not allowed to announce yet, uh, legal stuff. Um, but we have a couple of shows booked, so it's probably going to be just a few shows unless there's a call for it because all these guys have other bands. Michael's constantly on tour with Nocturnal, so it's like if somebody offers us a tour, we're going to take it, you know. But if it's you know just to put the record out, promote it a couple of times, have some fun with my friends, and then kind of just see what goes from there. Awesome. Well, we, we wish you the best with the new record. Everybody listening, links are in our show notes. Go check out the Wicked Garden latest uh, release last year, Bipolar Disorder from 2021. Bipolar Coaster. Um, <laughs> or Bipolar Coaster, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I, I don't know why I said that. I read it wrong, man. It's Shoot, all good, man. Yeah. It's all good. Hey, I guess it's early on a Sunday morning. Folks are listening to that. No, that was my mistake. I got a new baby at home. That's oh, man, no, you get a pass. You got yeah, a pass, bro. Yeah, You're good. But, <laughs> bipolar is a disorder. Bipolar coaster is the is the record from that. Right. Good stuff there too. Dominic, thanks for being on the show. It was been a you, pleasure. Man. Right. Have a great day. Thanks to Dominic for jumping on to discuss his latest solo work. Everyone can take a quick sigh and know that is all is well with Wicked Garden as well. Fall 2022 is looking to be a great time for tone house records with the new atomic kings album and now this shout out to jason for continuing to fly the flag of rock and roll and getting some incredible artists on his label out there at his shop in vegas be sure to follow tone house dominic and this show on all social media outlets have a great start to the week everybody take your good time with you wherever you go we'll be back next time with another great guest